I had never been in a group where the leader very explicitly says, let's keep all this in the here and now. And that was a bit shocking. And people would sort of say, well, we don't even know one another. How can we keep it in the here and now? But after five minutes, we began to know each other. And who was saying what? And who didn't want to do that? And who did want to do that? And, and soon I began to see it really was possible to really keep it in the here and now. We were interested in the group, at least, in the past history of people. We're interested in how we relate to one another in the immediate present. It's a rarer time that you'll ever get feedback about how you come across to others. And yet our peer relationships are tremendously important to us. And for once we can, we have a mirror that we can look into and see how others see us and see how we see them and how accurately or inaccurately we see them. I thought that was quite wonderful. And my mission then began to let's import that approach to therapy into group therapy. That's Dr. Irvin Yalom, today's guest on the Group Dynamics Dispatch. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm Angelo Siliberti, and I'm excited to share with you these conversations that explore what it means to live and grow within groups, from our early lives to our professional role as leaders. In these episodes, you will hear from some of the key figures practicing and writing about group dynamics from around the country and the world. It's our hope that these dialogues will inform and challenge so that we can all learn more about the rediscovery of self and other that can occur through rich emotional engagement in group. Today's guest is Dr. Irvin Yalom, a pioneer in the fields of group and existential psychotherapy for over 60 years. Dr. Irvin Yalom's work has been highly influential across cultures, generations, and genres. His widely read works of fiction and nonfiction explore the discovery of self through authentic relationship and the appreciation of life through reflection on death. The son of two Russian immigrants, Yalom grew up in Washington, D.C., where his parents owned a grocery store. Spending much of his early life immersed and inspired by books, Dr. Yalom went on to earn his M.D. from the Boston University School of Medicine. In the early 1960s, he and his wife Marilyn moved to Southern California, where they both became professors at Stanford University. Dr. Yalom began his publishing career in 1970 with the release of The Theory and Practice of Group Psychotherapy, now in its fifth edition, co-authored with Dr. Mullen Lesh. Since then, he has authored numerous other books on group and existential psychotherapy, including such bestsellers as Love's Executioner and When Nietzsche Wept. His literary work has won international acclaim and his unique contributions to the field of group psychotherapy were acknowledged by the AGPA with a Distinguished Life Fellowship Award. In his most recent book, Becoming Myself, a Psychiatrist's Memoir, Dr. Yalom reveals more about the influences, relationships, and motivations behind his life and career, as well as the creative process behind each of his books. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Irvin Yalom. Welcome, Dr. Yalom. Thank you. Glad to be here with you. 
the appreciation for you and your work, your publications runs so very, very deep in our organization. So it is a tremendous honor to have you on the show. First off, just wanted to acknowledge that in the spirit of the material that we're talking about, we decided to take a very group-oriented approach to this interview. And we have reached out to our membership and we have asked them to write in with their thoughts, questions that they would love to have you address. So in the spirit of that, all of the questions that we have here come from members. So first off, for over 50 years now, you have made group a primary focus of your career. And I wondered if you would speak to and reflect a little bit on what is it about group and the group experience that has inspired you, that has held your attention and captivated you for so many years? Well, for one thing, I don't think this is the only answer to that, but I had the great good fortune to take my training in psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, where early in my first year, I met Jerome Frank, who was one of the two professors of psychiatry. He was very much interested in group work, had written one of the very first books on group, and he led a group we residents could observe. Well, I started watching it through this tiny little one-way mirror, our heads all pressed together to see that. After a while, most of the other residents, there were, I think there are about eight of us in the program each year, I lost interest. But I found it fascinating. Then began to work with Jerry Frank uh, after that. When he was out of town, he would ask him to lead the group. I began to sit on his research meetings and found groups were tremendously valuable. I did them for my inpatients on my inpatient groups there. I did them outpatients and uh, used a lot of groups. I, and also we had various parts of our residency. We'd spend three months at various institutions. And I, I went to an institution that was a prison for sexual offenders and led groups there. That was my one of my very first articles that I wrote in the field, I wrote an article on voyeurism and had a lot of voyeurs in a group. And then after that, I had to go in the army. Every resident in those days had to go in the army. There was something called the Barry Plan. If you didn't sign it, they'd draft you out of medical school. So we all signed this and they sent me to Hawaii and I led groups there, many different types, led a group of officers, wives of officers. And there was a nearby residency too that I started doing a kind of tea group for residents. And then I continued that after the Army two years, and uh, then I went to Stanford and had a very good fortune to be there just as the department was opening. It had just moved from San Francisco, and they were building a whole new hospital, a whole new department, and a, a head of psychiatry named Dave Hamburg, a very inspirational man, who really gave me total freedom. I could do what I wanted to do. And we had a very large group of residents. We had 12, 14 residents each year for, for three years and uh, no group therapy program at all. So I started a group therapy program and had all the residents watch my group for a year and had them all do a group. And soon I had perhaps uh, 15 to 20 groups going on the clinic, which made a great opportunity to try and do some research. And began the first part of my career was devoted to running groups and teaching groups and doing group therapy research. At the end of that seven years, one had to have a sabbatical, one of the great privileges of uh, being in the faculty of uh, the university. And I went to England for a year and spent that year and the year after that writing a textbook on group therapy, which I've now revised five times and continue to, to love what groups do and been in a group myself with other residents for the last 20, 25 years with other faculty members, young people who came on when I did. So I benefit from being in a group personally as well as leading many groups. 
Oh, perfect. That's actually something I'd love to come back to and talk to you a little bit about. But it sounds like part of what initially inspired you so much was realizing just how universal groups could be. Everything from people with um, histories of sexual predatory behaviors all the way to residents and training groups and how important group could serve some of what they were trying to work on. And right about that time, about the time I was finishing, there was a whole explosion in the whole country with the encounter group movement, perhaps somewhat more local on the West Coast and the East, but they were all over the country at that point. And uh, therapy is too good to be used just for the sick, they would say. Why not use it for everyone? And soon we were seeing encounter groups being held on the dorms at Stanford and free universities springing up offering dozens of kinds of groups. And then the growth centers like Esalen, for example, also were offering many types of groups for healthy people. Right. So you're really in a position where there was kind of a group zeitgeist that was happening in the culture. Absolutely. I was right smack in the middle of it. Right. That's shifted. And I think that would be important to address because I'm curious how you see the future of where this is going. But in the meantime, I just finished your memoir. I often ask guests of the podcast to share about the experiences that led them into group that were meaningful, that were impactful. You really go into a great amount of detail in the memoir about that, which is, which is wonderful. One particular instance that really grabbed my attention was the moment you were in a group and the first time you heard a group leader invite the group to keep all the communication to the here and now. And you mentioned what an inspiration that was for you and what a shift that that created. And I wondered if you might reflect a little bit about how that stimulus, I think you called it in the book, impacted you and influenced the style that you ended up developing as a group leader. I was doing a little bit of that in my training at Hopkins, but not so pronounced at that point. When I joined uh, an encounter group that were going on everywhere, I decided I better be in one myself. At this point, this was sponsored by the National Training Laboratory, which was a branch of the National Education Association. And they were very prominent in, in various businesses as well, businesses that were having product. But I had never been in a group where the leader very explicitly says, let's keep all this in the here and now. And that was a bit shocking. And people would sort of say, well, we don't even know one another. How can we keep it in the here and now? But after five minutes, we began to know each other. Who was saying what and who didn't want to do that and who did want to do that? And soon I began to see it really was possible to really keep it in the here and now. We were interested in the group, at least, in the past history of people. We're interested in how we relate to one another in the immediate present. It's a rare time that you'll ever get feedback about how you come across to others. And yet our peer relationships are tremendously important to us. And for once, we can, we have a mirror that we can look into and see how others see us and see how we see them and how accurately or inaccurately we see them. I thought that was quite wonderful. And my mission then began to let's import that approach to therapy into group therapy. And so the groups that began to, began to focus much more on the here and now than they had before I went to that encounter group event. And that, in some ways, I think really became the hallmark of your approach the immediacy of the group experience. Over the course of your career, how has that shifted? How has it evolved for you? How do you see your group approach shifting or changing in the years that you've been leading groups? I think it's been shifting more and more to doing more and more of that. Well, I have this group of other therapists that I've been into for, for all of these years, and we will do a lot of work on how members of the group are feeling towards one another 
or how this particular intervention makes one feel. That's one of the hallmarks of group therapy. It also comes along in this country at a time when there were beginning to be changes in the way that the whole psychodynamic endeavor was approached. Uh, we were first, of course, in a, in a clear-cut Freudian pattern. It was dominating psychiatry, if you can believe it. When I started in the field, almost every chairman of psychiatry was a psychoanalyst. Today, I'm sure there's not a single chairman of psychiatry who's a psychoanalyst. But in those days, that dominated the field. And then and there were beginning to be changes in that approach as we began to think about more of the interpersonal approach. That was an American invention that was brought to the field, led by Harry Stack Sullivan and Trina from Reichman and Eric Fromm. So we began to take a look at not only the very important the early relationships in life, but peer relationships all through one's life. And Harry Sachs-Alvin has rarely ever read now. He's a terrible writer. But he, he was a major contributor, and he lived in that area in the northeastern part of the country where I was. He died quite early. I actually love some of his writing as well, the interpersonalists, as well as Karen Horney, and the way the emphasis gets placed on ongoing relationship, that it's a core essential nutrient we all need throughout our life. Karen Horney's book, The Neurotic Personality of Our Time, I think was the most underlying book I had in my training. I read that over and over again. I thought it was quite wonderful, although no one ever hears her name now, but she was an amazing writer. Absolutely. Well, and I'm thinking about some of your other writings. You have an entire textbook on existential psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. If you would actually talk about how you define or you relate to the term existential, I think that's a word that gets used in so many different ways and can be somewhat broad in its usages. So how you see or relate to the term existential when you're writing or talking about it? Well, I think my attention was first brought to it. When I started to read Rollo May's book, Existence, that was just about when I was in my second year of residency. I thought it was a very important book. And for the first time, I began to think about the fact that our field didn't start with Freud in 1893. Uh, there were many, many thinkers, uh, many philosophers who were uh, thinking important thoughts that were that so germane to our field. And that's when I started to think I better get an education in philosophy and began to take courses in philosophy and at Hopkins and learn a lot more about that and began to think that the issues that these uh, philosophers were talking about, about meaning of life, about death, about how we thought about death, about how it gave birth to many different types of religions, I thought these were all quite germane to our field. And so the next big project after the group therapy project was for me to start thinking about how could I write a book that might begin to introduce these concepts to, to therapists. So then I began to think about, I knew that the death was going to be the major part of that, but also I was going to spend time on meaning in life and also on isolation, how we build our own world for us, and also freedom and how we often try to avoid our freedom, as Eric Fromm said, by, by turning to, to tyrants. So uh, as I started to write that book, I wanted to talk about death patients, and I really didn't know how to. And then I began thinking, well, I think I should be talking about death to people who are facing death, and they were dying of a terminal cancer. And I started seeing these members, and for one thing, I noticed that they were very, very much alone. Nobody could really talk to them in a genuine fashion. And they talked to others about their morbid ideas about 
death coming soon that was going to bring down others. But then I thought, well, maybe a group would be useful. So I began forming groups of people who were dying of cancer, led those groups for 10 years. I learned a lot about how we view death and what death means to us. And that formed the real spine of that book called Existential Psychotherapy. I've always wanted to be a writer of fiction and stories and began turning to those too, but always with the idea uh, that these would be ways to teach. Uh, so these were tight teaching stories and even teaching novels. And I wrote novels about Nietzsche and his contributions to our field and about Schopenhauer and Spinoza as well. Right, absolutely. And I'd love to talk to you about some of those things. I am curious, and you started talking about it in relation to group and running groups for terminally ill patients, how you see group as an opportunity to address existential factors, for example, death anxiety. Well, that group was a tremendous opportunity for doing that. Everyone was concerned about that. And it was quite overt for each of them, and each people had different ways of doing it. But this gave them a forum where they're not only permitted to, but encouraged to talk about that. One of my patients put it so wonderfully, you know, they said, well, we're all alone in our little ship, but it's so wonderful to see the lights of little ships around us. So we, mm-hmm. we feel that we're together with others and dissipate our, our isolation and loneliness. So those groups were tremendously important, and, and, but hard to lead. Mm-hmm. You, that, that drove me back into therapy as I kept getting confronted with my own death. So I moved back into therapy then with, with Rollo May, who happened to have moved out to the West Coast. But that's something I'm always encouraging therapists to do, to be in therapy themselves, not once, but often. They should welcome a period of anxiety or being upset about something. It's a good opportunity to get back in therapy and get back in therapy perhaps with a different kind of therapy. So you can begin to see what the other schools of therapy are like. And that makes me curious because in your work, you have continually emphasized the importance of being in therapy and continual therapy. And I'm curious, do you think it's similar for group, actually, that if you're going to be a group therapist, it's important to continually be in group settings as a member? I'm trying to think of how many of my residents and students have done that. I think quite a few. After we started this program, then we began to organize groups for, for psychiatry residents. And so I began leading a group of the first-year residents for the whole year. And they were not easy groups to lead, but it was they were quite useful. After a while, I began to feel like it'd be better for someone else to lead that group than someone who's in the faculty and might have to be writing letters for them in, in other positions. So I had members of the community and private practice come to lead those groups. And those groups still continue in our residency now, 50 years later. So the first-year residents and the second-year residents and the third-year residents all have process groups that go on for the whole year. And quite often, the one that starts for the first-year residents, they, they want to continue that, so they continue for a second and a third year as well. So all the students at Sanford are all in groups. In fact, just yesterday, a medical student called me. When I see medical students, they rotated through our service. I led them in a group, 10 meetings of a kind of a T group called training. And the T means training and interpersonal relationships. So we, we talked about the here and now in these groups. And they were there, still there for 10 hours. And I got a group from a student. This was 50 years ago, at least, maybe longer than that, who just saw a book that I had written and wanted to tell me. And he remembered that group that we were in and how important that was to him. 
So that was a good feeling. You remember that law. Well, it made me wonder too, when you have published and you've written as much as you have about group, how you continue to find settings where you can be a group member. Are you currently in a group? How does group membership currently affect your life? Yeah, I'm, I'm currently in this um, therapy group. We'll call it group therapy for therapists. It's, uh, all of these are, I'd say, senior therapists and that they're all fairly old. We've, we've had this group that's gone on for 20, 25 years. Um, nobody's really dropped out uh, for 20 years now, but, but we've lost a couple people through death, had its new people. And I, we meet every, every for an hour and a half every other week. And those groups are terribly important to me. I've never talked about them until I wrote my memoir, at which point I asked for permission from the group to do that. And so I told some things about how these group, what these groups are like, because all of us feel the group is so important that we'd I'd like others to start such groups along the way. Mm-hmm. So yes, that, that group is tremendously important to me. I live in other groups as well. I have a case presentation group that meets once a month. That's been going on forever. I've been in a, a group of doctors who write, and there we're critiquing each other's writings. At times, it moves into a process group, but not so explicitly as the regular process group. And by process group, I mean group that talks about its own process, about how we're working in that group, how we're working together. Well, it's beautiful to hear you talk about your group experiences now, and in particular, a group that you've been a part of for 25 years. What an incredible amount of cohesion that group must have. Right. And it's so supportive. Sometimes I run into difficulty. I'm waiting for the next Tuesday to come along to talk about it. Well, and I'm also thinking along the lines of self-development of the therapist. We're talking about it in terms of continually being in therapy. One of the things I was struck by in your book is continually talking about how much you read, in particular reading fiction. You've mentioned reading a lot of philosophy as well, but always reading fiction and um, being in the midst of a chapter. And it made me wonder how you might see reading as a form of training for the therapist. Well, when I was talking about reading like that, I am talking about reading fiction. And that's another part of me that I've always wanted to be a fiction writer. And had I grown up in another era, I don't know, but the son of immigrants coming from Russia uh, was seeking to enter the American culture. No such thing. We had never known anyone who wrote fiction like that. Uh, Maybe Philip Roth did, but he was a few years later than I was. I write fiction that's dedicated towards therapy. What my strength is, is trying to really analyze the the relationship between the characters in them. And I've done that with, with each of the novels I've read. Sometimes I've had the fantasy, well, why don't I try and do a science fiction fantasy or a fantasy like that? But I've never done that. Well, and it's clear in your writing how much as a fiction writer, you've been influenced by psychotherapy and the way the thoughts and feelings might get developed in, in the characters. I'm wondering if it also goes the other way, if you find that your experience as a writer influences you as a therapist in terms of the words or the languaging you might choose for an intervention. I don't see that, but there is a certain kind of way where I see this as a story. When the residents were watching my therapy group for all these years, and at first they were reluctant to do that and it was too much time for them, but they they began calling it Yellum's Peyton Place. Peyton Place was a soap opera a long time ago because I kind of feel it's a story. I'm eager to see what's going to happen with each of these people next week. So there is that kind of feeling that it begins to take on a story quality. I have that sense when I see my patient. 
usually when I, when I see them, I'm thinking, I'm kind of curious, well, what's happening now since you told that we met last week? What have you done with this discourse that we discussed before? So I'm kind of expecting there to be a follow-up and a change of each. So I, I think in some way it's very hard for me to elaborate, though the fictional author part of myself does, does enter into my therapy. Mm-hmm. It gets really involved in the narratives and the stories of their lives. People see that I'm interested in them, and that, of course, augments therapy. Absolutely. Well, and, and I'm curious about where you see the future of all this going. Any ways in which you might speak to being where you are now in your career, over 50 years, being a therapist, what you might see as your current edge, your current growth learning curve that you're on? Well, I'm afraid I'm about the point of retirement at this point. And there's not many 87-year-old therapists. I'm 87 as of yesterday. Uh, not many therapists continue that long. I still see patients. I, not very many, a couple a day. More and more now, I'm looking for quite short-term therapy or something to get them started in therapy. There are a few therapists I've known that have practiced much longer than, than that, but it does get to a point where I think it's time for me to not to take on any long-term patients. And, mm-hmm. stuff. and for the past two or three years, the therapy I've done, I usually set a time limit of, of one year. Uh, and now I'm sure I'll be doing that even for a much shorter period of time. What What do you think in terms of the future of psychotherapy, in terms of where we're headed? I have a feeling in the future, people are going to be doing groups where people are not all together in the same room. And uh, it'll make it perhaps much easier for people to go to groups. And it's possible that will be a very big thing in our field. I've done a little bit of consulting with an agency called Talkspace. And I've been sort of pushing them to say, well, why, just on the same issue, why don't you have some of your beginning therapists get together in a group format? Just about two weeks ago, they had their first group. And the therapists were all in different states, but they're all together on the screen. And they say they had a fabulous first meeting. And it was all, they were all very excited about that. And they're going to keep on going with that group. So maybe that's going to be the future for many types of group therapies. In other words, people don't necessarily all have to be in the same room, although I much prefer that. And I've not led groups of people being in different rooms in their own homes, but they have been. There are a few articles now in the uh, American Journal of Group Psychotherapy, so International Journal of Group Psychotherapy. So I'm sure that that will flourish more. You know, it was interesting because I recently had an experience, my first experience of being on a video conference as a group member. And beforehand, I had no idea what it was going to be like. I was, I was actually a little skeptical of it. But as soon as the, the group started, as soon as we were all on the platform together, you're in group. It's, it was amazing that all the thoughts and feelings that I typically have as a member are right there just via this form of technology. So that may be part of the future of the field that I, that I won't experience. Mm-hmm. I did a, a, an interview like this, but in front of a large audience, I've done that many, many occasions on video. But one about a month ago, I did one, I think it was in, it was in Israel, and there were about 300 people or so in the audience, and the audience was asking me questions. Then I learned after we started, I had noticed that people weren't all in an auditorium. They were all in their own homes. So I could see on my screen, 50 little boxes and there are people there and I could see another and then they'd switch. Someone else would ask a question. They'd show me another screen and there are 50 boxes and the person who was talking got to be a little larger and I saw her. It was a little surreal, but the conference went very smoothly. 
So yes, well, we're kind of we're in the in the time now for some major changes going on. Absolutely. Well, and a part of those changes, I think, is also the zeitgeist that's happening around the social justice movement with Me Too and addressing abuses of power, race riots. I'm curious how you view that through a group lens or an existential lens and ways in which you may see group as being a form where those kind of issues can be addressed. I've never thought about that. Well, tell me what you were thinking of. How, how might they be addressed in a group? Well, I'm thinking about how the group becomes a, a microcosm for what's happening socially. And it seems yeah. like we have an opportunity to leverage group as a forum where some of the tensions that are getting played out, we might even say getting kind of acted out, even in violent ways outside in the greater community, could be brought into group and worked mm-hmm. out, worked through in group, worked through in words, worked through in interpersonal communication in such a way that shifts something of the, the social justice dialogue. And I'm wondering any thoughts or reflections you may have on the ways group could be an opportunity for that. You're thinking perhaps if there's some sexism, uh, some sort of flirtatiousness that may get in the way, or women not feeling comfortable with some of the way the men are viewing, whether that could be talked about openly in a group. I sure think it could be. Uh, and maybe even for groups of people who, are, again, are not in the same room, but more in a community where they're seeing people who they might not ordinarily meet. I think the future is, is going to be very different. Absolutely. Congratulations. The theory and practice of group psychotherapy, which has been such a core text for so many of us, I understand that you guys are just at the beginning of working on the sixth edition. We are. We hope to finish it in a year, a year and a half. We told the publisher that at least. The uh, president of the American Group Psychotherapy Association is, is doing a lot of the hard legwork and, and really doing all the reviewing of the research. So he's beginning to edit a couple of the early chapters. And my job really is to keep the language so that it's all quite resonant with the other language in the group, make it a smooth read for the for the young student. Yeah. You know, it was one of the pieces in your memoir that I really enjoyed when you were talking about the, the very first writing of that textbook and how it was initially written with kind of an academic tone. And then you found out from Stanford after the first two chapters that you were tenured and you got to completely revise the tone to speak more casually and more directly, more pragmatically to therapists. That was uh, just a wonderful story. Well, that is very much alive now because there are two chapters that I wrote that I told Nolan when we started this book, those two chapters are going to go. You know, we're going to totally rewrite them or eliminate them. The one was on composition of the group. And the other was how they choose the group members, but then also how you think you can compose the group in the, in the best way. Actually, none of that research has really led to being very helpful in groups. So I think we're going to think about eliminating large parts of that chapter. So whenever I'm suggesting to Mullen that, you know, I, I think this is not reading well and the book's too long, he keeps saying, well, don't forget, we're going to cut a large part of that other chapter out. So I wrote, because one thing I'm absolutely determined is not to make this book any longer than it was. It's far too long as it is for a textbook. Absolutely. So it's, it's wonderful how much it's continuing to stay very much alive as a textbook. Yeah, I'm very glad to hear that. Well, and I'm thinking, uh, I realize that we're running out of time, but I I wanted to just think about one of your most recent publications, the memoir, and the way you talk about group in that memoir. And curious, any thoughts you may have about the writing of that memoir, the creative process you went through, and the way that reflective process influenced how you see yourself as a therapist? Hmm. 
It's not an easy job to write that memoir. What do I include? What don't I include? Uh, you know, there was a theme going through that about my own development. My early years were quite difficult years. My parents were immigrants. I lived in a very poor section of town. I was the only white boy in a black neighborhood because my father had a store in a black neighborhood. And the only Jewish boy in, a, in the white neighborhood, too. So I mean, a few of those first 13, 14 years were, were difficult. And that was a difficult part of it to, to write. And it, it stirred up a lot of really unpleasant memories. And then there was the theme of my becoming a therapist, my becoming a group therapist. And that was that one thing. And then the whole theme of my life with my wife, who I met when I was 15. And I've got a very big, active family with, with eight grandchildren now. So how much space do they take? What I felt like I wanted to do is I wanted to write about the books I've written and how they started. They're all so precious to me. And I clearly, even now, uh, when I think about when Marilyn might mention, oh, remember uh, where we were in Bali, somehow, my memory, oh, what book was I writing then? And immediately flashed in my mind. That's when I was writing Love's Execution. Or got the books tied in. I did a lot of writing out of the country because uh, every every time I had sabbatical, I took advantage of that and went away to a desert island in the Seychelles or Bali and wrote uh, then, although I usually had to split half the year with Marilyn, who was a Francophile. She had her PhD in French. She wanted to be in France. So there are many themes and sub-themes going through those the books in my memoir. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like each one is kind of a reference point or, or a milestone in your life. And it was interesting, as I was talking to people about doing this podcast, it, it seems similar for your audience, because I would somehow it would come up that I was doing this interview, and then somebody would say, oh, I'll never forget that chapter in Love's Executioner, or every day gets a little closer. It was so interesting for me to read that, that and to hear what the patient was thinking versus the therapist. So there's a way in which there's kind of been an, an emotional communication of that, I think, to the audience where each person has a different reference point for those books. As soon as you mention that book, I immediately see this patient who's long since dead. I see her in my eyes. I see our meeting in the office. I see how shy she was. I see our each writing our summaries and giving them into my secretary before we started and our each writing these. I see my wife reading it all over and she's like, you know, this could be kind of like an epistolary novel. And so she took over and did some editing of that and uh, made that book happen. So each of those books is very much alive in my mind. You mentioned one, and I just dive into it. They're like my children also. Yes, absolutely. Well, Dr. Yalom, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to be on the podcast. It has been an incredible pleasure to interview you. You're incredible. Sorry about my voice. I'm just getting over a bad cold. I thought I'd be okay today, but it's a, it's a little strange still, as you see. But but thanks for the interview. You were really quite facilitating. Oh well, thank you very much. And I wanted to wish you a very uh, happy Father's Day and happy Grandfather's Day. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to the Group Dynamics Dispatch the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. If you'd be interested in supporting our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes. If you have any feedback for us or have suggestions for featured guests and topics, please feel free to email us at podcast at fcgps.org. Also, visit our website, fcgps.org, to stay updated on future conferences, workshops, and training programs. 
We appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events soon.